This is Josh Lewin, and I want to start this final edition of our podcast series with a big thank you to, first of all, our terrific sponsor, Pepsi, longtime friend of the fans, and a big thank you to Scott Stone and the rest of the Dolphins' amazing current PR staff, certainly to the late and inspirational Jason Jenkins, who had the vision to undertake this project in the first place. His wisdom and gentle countenance is missed every day by all of us. R.I.P., my friend. And uh, as we want to thank these 20 or so players who participated in the project, I'd like to personally introduce you as well to the man who made research so much easier for your host, the author of the wonderful book that I hope you'll use as a compendium or companion piece to this podcast series. It's a book called, appropriately enough, 17 and 0. And that author's name is Marshall John Fisher, a longtime Dolphins fan who joins me now from his home in western Massachusetts. I know that's Patriots country, but this is a tried and true Dolphins fan with a perfect writer's touch. Marshall, many thanks for your efforts. I have to ask you, what inspired you to write a 396-page book about the 1972 Miami Dolphins? Hey, Josh, it's great to be with you. And uh, yeah, I I grew up in Miami, and I was a nine-year-old kid in 1972, and it was really my first year that I was uh, really on board as a big Dolphins fan, along with my brother and my dad. <clears throat> and, you know, I think that season had a big effect on everyone living in Miami then, and particularly on a kid, uh, in the kids who were growing up there and were such huge fans. And I always uh, intended to write about them. And uh, finally, with the 50th anniversary looming, I was able to get a book contract a few years ago and uh, able to get the book done in time for the big season. So of all the Dolphins players and all the memories you still treasure from 50 years ago, who and what shows up at the top of your list even now? Well, you know, the thing about that team is there's not just one. It was such a it was, it was such a, a complete team and full of such great characters and interesting people. You know, it was, it was, it was it, among other things, a very intelligent group of guys and, and very colorful and funny. And so I, I can't pick one guy, but there's just so many that, uh, you know, but you had the... Uh, the guys like Greasy and Moral, these kind of crew conservative types. And then, you know, the, the party guys, Mandich and Randy Fernandez and, you know, Jake Scott. Um, and the way they all blended together, I think, is what made that team so memorable. So uh, the whole one of the char- main characteristics about that team is that it's hard to pick out just one. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like it's the ultimate, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts story, right? I mean, isn't that part of the narrative, don't you think? Absolutely. And so many of them had been uh, unsung players or even cast-offs. You know, the, the offensive line called themselves the Expendables because they had been, most of them, except for Doug Cruzan, most of them had been let go by other teams and, or, you know, hadn't even, I mean, Kuchenberg had been playing semi-pro ball before he came down to Miami. And then the defense, of course, was called the No Names. Um, and aside from Bonacati, who had been a big all-pro in the uh, AFL, uh, all of them were pretty unsung players. And uh, again, a lot of them, yet guys like um, Doug Swift, who played for a little Amherst College and, you know, guys who'd been let go by other teams. So absolutely, the, the whole thing about this team is the word team. And then Don Shula was just incredible at uh, getting the most out of them and getting them to work together as a team. I feel like Larry King here, and that's appropriate since he was a team's color commentator on the radio in 72, but here I go. The book is 17-0. and 0. The author is Marshall John Fisher, and it's easy to get by simply going to Amazon.com. Is that the best way to, to do it, Marshall? Uh, that's the easiest, but it's everywhere. Hopefully it's in your bookstore, that whatever bookstore you prefer, but uh, certainly Amazon has it in other out- online outlets. Very cool. This book, Larry Zonka's book, lots of ways you can relive the magic. Our thanks to Marshall John Fisher for jumping in. Now, let's jump back. January 14, 1973, which is when they actually played the final game of the 1972 NFL season. The Dolphins had famously run the table, but they were still one to three point underdogs, depending on where you were putting down your bet. No one really believed that this band of likable misfits was really the best team in the league, despite the perfect record. Many favored the Redskins to win because of their group of veterans and because, well, Miami did have what some considered a pretty easy schedule. Only two opponents, Kansas City and the New York Giants, had winning records. And both of those teams were only 8-6. and six. And the Dolphins, of course, had to rally to win their two playoff games. Washington had a much easier time of it. Maybe it was because of that no-name defense, a nickname inspired by Cowboys coach Tom Landry when he failed to recall the names of any Dolphins defenders just before the previous Super Bowl. But obviously, there was 
this tremendous defense, led by the future Hall of Famer, Nick Bonacani at linebacker, Jake Scott at safety. He had five interceptions. Lloyd Mumford had four picks at corner. Dick Anderson had three interceptions, led the NFL with five fumble recoveries. But because of injuries to defensive linemen at the beginning of the year, people were still not sold, and it wasn't until that 53 defense was created in which the versatile Bob Matheson, number 53, could be toggled back and forth between defensive end or a linebacker. Manny Fernandez was tremendous, of course. There were so many talented players here. Off the field, things were about to get crazy. Uh, In fact, the day after the Super Bowl, the trial of the Watergate burglars was set to begin, and things were already getting crazy back in Miami, too. The Dolphins were getting ready to try and win it all out in L.A. coming up. But once the Dolphins landed in L.A., there was a prevailing thought of, we got to do things differently from the year before. The Dolphins had gone to New Orleans, and everything was chaotic in New Orleans. Now, that is kind of what New Orleans is all about. But Everybody wanted to make sure distractions would not be an issue. The Dolphins were assigned to stay at the Edgewater Hyatt House in Long Beach, some 40 minutes away. Here's Larry Zonka. Shula got us as far out of Dodge as possible. <laughs> we were so remote that we didn't see anybody for the whole week. He wanted our total concentration, which he felt like the year before he hadn't had when we, when we lost to Dallas in Super Bowl VI. And as a result, he put us way the heck out of town, very remote, and we didn't, there wasn't much, he had early curfews, and there wasn't much, he didn't want any secondary confusion about tickets or any of that. He played that all down, a great deal, and made sure that all that was taken care of days before the game. He wanted total concentration on the game itself, and he had that, and I think it made the difference. As the guys were getting prepped for battle back in Miami, even before they headed to L.A., Maybe you've heard the story already. Manny Fernandez and Bill Stanfield caught an alligator and brought it back to the locker room as a little surprise for Coach Shula. Manny was asked what he recalled about all that. Well, I wasn't there when he saw it. But uh, Danny Dow was still there in the equipment room. And uh, as I recall, what he told me was a picture of uh, Don Shula running down the hallway uh, with a towel wrapped around him, screaming for Danny. Uh, and he ran naked right out into the parking lot uh, outside our, our locker rooms and offices, uh, yelling for Danny to come help him. <laughs> and, uh, and Danny now had to go in. Now, we did tape the Gators' mouth shut. I should say we. I did. Uh, that was a That was a team effort. I settle in for a long answer now because I do have a follow-up question. So how did this whole alligator caper unfold? Well, we were on my swamp buggy, and we were deer hunting on a Friday morning. We didn't have to be at training camp until I think it was 11 o'clock on Friday. So we'd go out about 6 in the morning and go deer hunting for a couple hours uh, from where we hunted out in the Everglades to uh, St. Thomas University where we practiced was only about a 30-minute drive. So we get out there and we make it back uh, basically just in time for the meeting. But uh, that morning we saw a pond that was just filled with alligators. How many, I don't know, but over 100. And uh, just riding through it on the swamp buggy, which is a full track vehicle that sits uh, about six feet high to the upper, to the lower deck in an upper deck where you steer and run the thing from. I was up steering it. Bill was on the back, and I didn't know what he would. He just said, slow down. Uh, and I slowed down the buggy and looked back, see what he was doing. He was laying on his belly, reaching down with his long arms and grabbed a gator by the tail, whipped it up on the deck. Uh, I shut the buggy enough, got down, taped its mouth shut. We put it in a toolbox that was bolted to the deck of the buggy. And we brought it back to camp, put it in the back of my trunk of my car. Um, everybody, we had three or four friends out there, including a partner that I shared the buggy with. Um, they, they kept on. We went back town, got there and asked Danny Dow to put the gator in the shower. Well, 
Jenny thought it was a great idea until he opened the trunk and the gator had gotten behind the spare tire. He couldn't see its face. And he was afraid I was lying about his mouth being taped shut. It was only a four-foot alligator. <laughs> was that it? Uh, yeah, and uh, he closed the trunk and forgot about it. When I came in after practice, um, he, I, I said, did you get it done? He said, oh, hell no, I didn't get it done. And he told me for why. I said, oh, damn. So I went and found Zonka because I knew I was going to need some help to get this past Coach Sheila's secretary. Went and got Zonka, and he kept her busy while I got the gator into the shower. And then Larry and I, we went off and drank a few beers and came back at what time we know Shula is on his way to dinner with his wife. On Friday nights, he always went to dinner with his wife at 7 o'clock. Right following the quarterback meetings, he would go get a shower, meet her in the parking lot, and she would take him to dinner. And this was every Friday night. And if he knew anything about Shula, he lived on Shula time. Uh, so we got back about 10 after 7, figuring he was gone. And Danny's telling us the story of him running out naked into the parking lot and all that good stuff. Uh, we're in there just howling, look up, and there's Shula standing in the doorway <laughs> to the equipment room. <laughs> He starts in, I knew it was you, I knew you did it. Of course, we denied it. We didn't, we just, what the hell are you doing here, beer? Well, we didn't come back here to do anything. We just came back to have a beer with Danny. And he never did figure it out. He never could prove it. But some years later, we were roasting Bill Ernsbarger at the Touchdown Club of Miami. And that night, I did give it up because Part of the story that never got told was that Arnsparger would use Shula's shower on Fridays rather than walk all the way to the player showers, which was quite a ways from their offices. And they'd have to come through all the way through our locker room to the shower room. And Shula's office was right next door to their offices. And it was much easier, so he would use Shula's shower. Well, he found the gator first, closed the shower door, left the office, went and showered in the player shower, gave Don, Danny Dow, the equipment manager, a little nod and a grin and kind of a, you know, a little finger wag. Um, letting him know he knew what was up, but he never told Shula. Man, who knew? What I take away from all that, Bill Arnsparger could have prevented the whole thing. So now let's ask Zonka. Did he take credit for this, or does he now admit he was just a decoy? Absolutely. Yeah, that's no, Manny's exactly right. I went in to, to, to get draw Shula's secretary, who guarded his office like like the, the knights of the kingdom. You know, she guarded that office with her personal. You know, it didn't. But I got her to walk out of there and, get, and clear the area, and Manny Manny went in and put the gator in the shower. It kind of tickled me that I got her out of there because she was just, uh, it, I had to almost carry her out of there. <laughs> so do you happen to remember what the ruse was, what the diversion was that you actually did? I said there were some people out front that had pulled up and that were, were inquiring about their tickets, and I wanted her to come out with me to look. And, of course, when we got out there, there was no one there. And I said I, they must have left. You know, I'm lying through my teeth in order to get her out of the way so that Manny can get into the office. But it worked. It got enough time. But Manny was in and out in a few seconds, and it made the difference because she didn't miss that door very much. All right, there you have it. Case closed. The alligator in the shower story preceding the trip to L.A. Let's get into the Dolphins' opponent now, the 11-3 champions of the NFC. Washington was coached by a football-only guy, George Allen, who said coaching is literally my life. Reportedly, his favorite drink was milk. And Allen had a reputation for being a bit of a spy, something Don Shula knew all too well. Case in point, the school overlooked the Rams facility that the NFL had designated as a Dolphins practice facility. Dolphins didn't like that, found a more secure field at a local community college for that week instead. And Dolphins employees inspected the trees every day for possible enemy espionage. 
For many of Allen's players, the Super Bowl was a bit of a homecoming. But with the game in L.A., this was an older team, and a full eight of their veteran players were former L.A. Rams. The Dolphins, meantime, were really not connected to L.A. in any discernible way. And besides that, they've been fighting a flu bug all week. In fact, Mar Fleming had been hospitalized for a few days just before the team even left Miami. Nick Bonacani had symptoms the morning of the game. He played sick. He, in fact, would not go to the Pro Bowl the week after. Don Shula was under the weather and certainly not a fan of hearing everybody talking about he was 0-2 in his previous two Super Bowls. Tim Foley couldn't play for Shula. He had the injured shoulder from the week before, so Henry Stuckey was activated for duty. It's a guy that had been making just a few hundred bucks a week on the taxi squad, had not been eligible for any playoff bonus money, but now this was a a $4,000 game for him if Miami could win his first ever game as a pro football player. Big deal for him, big deal for everybody. The Super Bowl was now a big deal. 93,000 plus a sellout would attend this game. Scalpers were getting premium prices. Super Bowls 6 and 7, when you look back, really were the tipping points, going from just a random championship game to something larger than life. Now, the Dolphins weren't exactly thrilled by a column written by the esteemed L.A. columnist Jim Murray. He was a highly thought-of sports writer who would later win a Pulitzer Prize. But in this piece, he had a lot of fun poking fun at the Dolphins. He called them kids in kooky tangerine and turquoise uniforms, doing impersonations of football players. They're like the drunk that climbs to the top of the ladder at the carnival to do a high dive into a pail of water, it said in his column. The rube who comes out of the audience to wrestle the bear or buck the shell game. He asked, what is this, a Super Bowl or amateur night? Now, the Dolphins were not falling down at this Henny Youngman routine at all. They were ready to prove their doubters wrong, including Jim Murray, when the sun rose on Sunday morning. When the Dolphins left their Long Beach hotel that day, the weather was actually fine. But as noon approached in central L.A., it was all the way up to 86 degrees and even hotter than that on the field. It actually made the Dolphins relax a little bit, knowing that they were so well conditioned for things just like this. Go back to week one in Kansas City. Miami took the field as the visitors in their white uniforms, the Redskins in the gold pants and burgundy tops. The first quarter featured a couple breaks for Miami. Howard Kindig appeared to mishandle a snap on the Dolphins' first punt from his own 27 and looked like he had lost the ball to the Redskins' Harold McClinton. But McClinton was called for slapping at the ball while it was being snapped. So instead, five-yard penalty on Washington. A huge call, and we asked Howard Kindig about it. I had uh, the... Uh, I had some old friends uh, for many years. Brian McDowell played with Washington Redskins. And uh, we played together five years in Buffalo. And uh, I, went, I was in San Diego three years before that. But anyway, we were old friends. And he goes to Redskins and I go to Miami. And uh, he's telling me that they had, George Allen had figured out that I picked up the ball when I snapped it. And I do what I did. I, I don't slide it on the ground. I pick just a hair off the ground. Because if you slide it back, sometimes the friction or something will take something off of it. Anyway, that, you know, all these kids today are doing it. They picked it up. So, you know. So it's not a big, like a really just pick it up and throw it back there. But it's, uh, you pick it up maybe a quarter of an inch or half an inch, third of an inch or something. And, then, and as soon as you move the ball, it's supposed to be in play. Well, they thought when, when I snap the ball if they could hit it somehow take it on the way back it would you know take the, something like hitting the golf ball into a tree it just takes it off take everything off of it so they had it worked on that they had drills they had the guys come up and see who could do it well Harold McClinton got down on his knees put his hand right next to the ball not off sides but right next to the ball and you can see when my hands tighten up you, you can see when your hands tighten up on the ball you can see you the fingers turn not white, but they, they do change. You can see when you're getting a little grip on the ball. He had ticked the ball. Well, I didn't know anything about what he was doing. I thought, what the hell is this guy doing sitting down there on his knees? I've never seen that. <laughs> so anyway, I did. As soon as I, I took and tightened my hands up, he slapped the ball. And it, it looked like I had a bad snap. And boy, Shula was all over my ass, and so was Monty Clark. I said, man, he slapped the ball. And I was hollering at the referee, and the re- anyway, the head linesman saw it, and he called a penalty on him. 
And so I really didn't do that drive off size, but I, I it was a, it was illegal play, number one. And Shula didn't like that at all. He thought that was crazy as hell. That anybody have to, so uh, anybody that would go to those lengths to try to do something like, you know, it was cheating is what he, so, but uh, George Allen practiced stuff like that. That's, they, they would do anything to win. And Shula was just the opposite. He couldn't beat you with what he's being fair. He wasn't going to beat you. So, but it, it was a big deal because that was in the first quarter and uh, L, they had the ball. Well, we got the ball back, went down and scored, but it was a, uh, I did draw him offside, so <laughs> that was a, it was a hell of a play. Kendig went on to say he knows someday his tombstone will read, here lies the guy who drew Harold McClinton offsides. On the replay of that down, Larry Seipel did get the kick away safely, and then, after the Dolphins had stopped Washington for the second time, Jake Scott failed to call for a fair catch of a Washington punt, and Dick Anderson had been telling him, you've got to call for the fair catch on these. Scott didn't, he fumbled. Fortunately, Anderson made the recovery. Strategically in this one, this would be the Redskins double-covering Warfield the entire first half, and Bob Greasy knew from that his BFF Howard Twilley might be a better option. So as a team huddled up from about 20 yards out, the play that Twilley was hoping for was called, trying to beat Redskins cornerback Pat Fisher. Here now is Bob Greasy. We got down, we moved the ball down the field, down the field, and from film study, we knew that um, uh, when you get inside the like the 20-yard line, they're going to play man coverage everywhere. And so I called a, a formation, like I think it was Brown right, and Fully was a flanker on the right side. And from that formation, that season, we we had run a lot of slants to the wide receiver. The flanker left side with Twilley, he'd run a lot of slants. Five yards and slant and not throwing the ball. And I knew they knew this. So, so, and I, in the huddle I called, all right, let's run 60Q. The Q is a slant and then back to the corner. And Twilley was a great route runner. And he knew what, I forget the guy's name, that uh, we were working on, but he was a—he was an all-pro receiver, a defensive back. I knew he would do what was coming. So we ran the slant, and he jumps the route, and Twilley cuts back and runs to the corner, and I lay it out there, and he catches it. And Twilley's so excited. He jumps up in the air and throws the ball in the air. Yeah, Pat Fisher was the cornerback Bob Greasy's talking about, and he actually caught up to Twilley at the one after the completion, but the momentum from the hit carried him right to the corner of the end zone right on the flag he rolled onto the ground just past that flag and he yelled at the referee i'm in i'm in the ref was already signaling yeah i know touchdown twilly five foot ten rumored to be on his way out every year boy just keeps making plays so the dolphins on the board first with one second left in quarter number one early in the second quarter billy kilmer for washington had a good opportunity himself but he overthrew his star receiver charlie taylor the Dolphins, strategically all day, were looking to clog the middle of the field. Bill Ornsparger saying we're not going to lose this game like we did last year by sitting back. We're going to take things away over the middle, and we're going to go after these guys whenever we can. So this game devolved into a defensive chess match. Punt after punt after punt here. In Washington's four possessions, they hadn't gotten past their own 40, largely thanks to a guy who deserved to be in the Pro Bowl, Manny Fernandez. Now, the Redskins would not double-team him, and Manny took full advantage. Just like Larry Little the week before, battling mean Joe Green, Manny Fernandez turned these one-on-one battles into a personal winner-take-all boxing match. He was going up against a couple pro bowlers on the other side. Fernandez, who never did get that designation, seemed to be winning these battles every single time. And on offense for Miami, remember, Warfield had been double-covered pretty much all game, but eventually he was able to break free in the second quarter. Greasy went play action as Warfield made his move to the post. Number 42 zip pass to safety Brig Owens was into the end zone with a perfect pass. It's a play the Dolphins had worked on all week, but it wouldn't count. Marlon Briscoe had flinched at the line of scrimmage. False start Miami, and the play was called back. Briscoe was essentially on the bench for the rest of the game. Don Shula just couldn't believe a veteran guy it cost his team seven points. Paul Warfield remembers it all 50 years after it happened. 
It would work out that way. We'll get you to that conclusion before too long. But for now, just 7-0 Miami. And now with three minutes left in the first half, Washington was moving for the first time. Nick Bonacani did stop the drive with an interception. He ran the ball out past midfield, in fact. And instead of facing a potential halftime tie, the Dolphins were now back in scoring position themselves. Less than 20 seconds to go in the half. They had made it to where Jim Kick could do his thing. He found himself in a big pile at the goal line, eventually getting behind Zonka and surging across. All that set up by a diving catch on the sideline by the third-year tight end out of Michigan, Jim Mandich. 14-0 for the team that had gone 14-0 in the regular season. So now a halftime, and gotta tell you, 
The halftime show was not exactly Prince or Michael Jackson. The so-called extravaganza was entitled Happiness, and it began with Mandich's University of Michigan marching band forming a happy face, and then a saxophone played along with Woody Herman. Uh, the Michigan State Spartan Earl Morrill must have been thinking, great, not only did I get benched for Bob Greasy, I got to hear the Michigan Wolverines marching band as I run into the locker room. The band formed the letters NFL as 26 golf carts came onto the field. Uh, Andy Williams and the Citrus College Singers sang This Land is Your Land. I mean, wow, what a halftime show. And after a couple more songs, 3,000 pigeons and 3,000 balloons were released and disappeared into the L.A. afternoon. That was your early to mid 1970s Super Bowl halftime show. And if you really want to know the other songs that were on the set list, put on a happy face, Woodchopper's Ball, Marmalade, Molasses, and Honey, and People. This was not Janet Jackson or even Maroon 5, believe it. Looking at the first half stats, Greasy had called for a pass only eight times, but he had completed all eight of them. The two long ones have been called back by penalties, including that Warfield touchdown. The rest, it was all Zonka, Kick, Morris, and that punishing offensive line. The Miami defense dominated the Redskins in the first half, limiting Washington to 49 yards rushing, 23 yards passing, only four first downs. Underway again, early in the third quarter, Manny Fernandez with a monstrous sack, forcing Washington into a field goal attempt. Kurt Knight, a one-time pro bowler, missed badly off to the right from 32 yards away. It stayed 14-0. The Dolphins kept it on the ground, kept chewing up clock, but eventually on one of those plays that was just supposed to grab a a few more yards, Zonka got completely free, and he mashed his way 49 yards downfield, his longest run all year. He had taken it to the 16 of Washington, one of 10 consecutive run plays the team had called to start this first possession of the half. Now the Dolphins had it goal to go at the four. Greasy faked a handoff to Morris. He looked for Mar Fleming in the end zone, but there was Brig Owens. Good safety. Read the play, made a terrific interception with his right hand, and that would kill off the drive. The Dolphins' defense would hold serve. Jake Scott leaped up, tipped the ball with both of his hands. He fell to the ground, cradling the ball before he got up and ran. Took it all the way to the Washington 48. It was a dazzling interception after he had picked off five in the regular season. Now, remember, it wasn't exactly a perfect day for the former Georgia Bulldogs. Scott had been fielding punts like a daredevil, but on this particular play, he was tremendous. As was Manny Fernandez, who was on his way to a 17-tackle game. But early in the fourth quarter, he got knocked dizzy on a play designed for Washington's Larry Brown. He had staggered up, tried to join the wrong huddle after all that. Nick Bonacani had to drag him off to the Miami side of the ball, but Fernandez refused to come out of the game. Anyway, I threw a screen pass to him, and I got to him. But all I could grab was the corner of his jersey, and I swung him around and to the ground. And as we were going to the ground, Nick was coming in to put in a killer shot, and he caught me right in the temple. And that's the last thing I remember till the next morning. Well, with Fernandez still out there, Washington looked like it may finally score with just under six minutes left. Billy Kilmer had Jerry Smith cutting across the back line at the end zone. Looked like a perfect opportunity, but the ball was knocked down, not by a Dolphin, but by the crossbar of the goalpost, which, remember, in 1972, was right above the goal line. Even the crossbar was making plays on defense. Soon after that, Jake Scott got in position for a pick a few yards deep in the end zone. He had thoughts of a 104-yard run back as he took off like a blur down the left sideline until Charlie Haraway found the angle, chased him out of bounds. Still, with a big return, uh, the Finns were in field goal range already. It looked like they'd be able to put the game away with the little balding kicker from Cyprus, Garo Yepremian. A field goal would have made it 17-0, and how perfect would that have been? 17-0 to finish the season, 17-0. Garrow in for a 42-yard put-away punch, but this time he kicked it too low. It hit his teammate Bob Hines right in the back, and the ball bounced off to the right. Morrill, the holder, and Garrow both ran after it, and had the all-pro quarterback had the ball in his hands, that wouldn't have been a bad option, but... Garrow stepped in front of the bouncing ball, stepped in front of Morrill. That was mistake number two, if you consider the low kick to have been mistake number one. On to mistake number three, which is the one that lives forever. It was basically a flashback to the Monday night game against St. Louis. Once again, instead of just falling on the ball, Garrow tried to throw it, 
and it did not go well. Uh, The ball slipped out of his hand, his tiny little hand. It hung for a moment there in front of him, then he pushed it back up into the air with both of his hands, just in a blind panic. Mike Bass of Washington came running by, said thank you very much, plucked the ball out of midair, and headed downfield. Garrow had a chance to stop him, but Bass made a little wiggle towards the middle of the field, and that hesitation by Garrow, it was all over. Bass flew right by him on his way in to the end zone. This would forever be the most remembered play from Super Bowl VII. Not Twilly's touchdown, not Zonka's 49-yard burst, not Jake Scott with the interception and run back, but this cartoon of a play that made it 14-7 with still two minutes to go. Here's long snapper Howard Kinding. He was a probably... Uh, I thought the world of Gero. He, the thing that happened in the Super Bowl was a weird thing. You know, we practiced. Coach Shula covered everything that you could possibly cover in, in the, any situation that come up in a football game, with the exception of what to do when there's a when there was a block part. You know, when, when the ball come to Gero instead, and nobody ever told him to fall on it. Nobody ever, you know, so. That was one thing that we didn't cover. And uh, so it really wasn't Gerald's fault. He just never had an opportunity. He never worked on that. We never had a, a drill. Whether we, you know, we had a, uh, used to, if there was a bad snap, we hollered fire. And everybody knew it was a bad snap. But uh, he, was a, he was a super little guy. <laughs> I, I was playing the golf tournament with him one time. And we had all these people standing around. And he, 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 we were standing on the green. And one of the guys I said, Gary, why don't you just put, why don't you kick the ball in the hole? I'm talking about this was like a thirty yard, a thirty foot putt. And he took a little old left foot and kicked that ball, and it went in the hole. <laughs> the Marlon Briscoe and Gary Yepremian now both being fitted for Goat Horns. Fourteen to seven, two oh seven left. The hands team was out for an onside kick, but instead Washington for some reason kicked it away. Mercury Morris ran it. Somewhat scarily back to the 15, then with 157 to go, it was now all about not fumbling and staying in bounds. Now, the Dolphins didn't fumble, but they didn't do a great job of staying in bounds. Larry Seipel came out to punt with still 124 to play, and actually the punt was almost blocked. He did get it away, 41-yarder, Redskins taking over at their own 30. Kilmer threw incomplete on his first pass. That stopped the clock. On second down, he overthrew a very well-covered Charlie Taylor. 60 seconds to go now. He ladled the screen pass down to Charlie Brown, but Stanfield dropped him like a sack of hammers. There was a loss on fourth down, the clock running. Kilmer fading back one last time, but Vern Denherter and Stanfield were on him before he could even look upfield. And Denherter remembers it fondly even now. We did. We realized that Bill Stanfield and I, and I've got, I've got uh, pictures of, uh, of that, and um, I guess the referee thought that we were a little premature in our celebrating because um, we had Kilmer on the on the ground. We realized that the game that was the the ending play of the game. Uh, we were ahead fourteen to seven, and that we won that game. And and we're laying there, and we're congratulating each other on top of Kilmer and the referee had to come over and remind us to let him up and, uh, and, and let him, let him get from underneath us. And it was a realization of, of, a, a well, it was over a, a year long, uh, goal when we were flying back from losing the first, uh, uh, Super Bowl game against Dallas. Uh, Shula came around on the plane, and quickly, uh, I, I imagine he he did this to everyone. He he just told us to remember how we felt having gone to the Super Bowl and lost it. And when we came back for training camp the next year, those were the first words out of his mouth again. We are not just going back to the Super Bowl. We're going to win it. And and having realized that and knowing that, that Stanfield and I sealed the end of the game, um, we, were, we were darn happy. What a great memory for Dan Herter and Stanfield to wrap it up with the sack. And you know what? If not for Garrow's gaff, there's no sack of Kilmer. 
Don Shula had finally harpooned his white whale. He was mobbed by adoring dolphin fans. One of them reached up to shake his hand, but another one at the same time took his watch off his wrist. Thankfully, the overeager fan came running back and returned the watch with a smile. Had Shula looked down at that watch, he would have seen it was 6.28 p.m. Eastern Time. And believe it, the celebration was already underway back in Miami. The celebration in the Dolphins' locker room was actually somewhat muted, considering what they had just pulled off, especially Manny Fernandez. Famously, he had sat on a stranger's car weeping after last year's Super Bowl because the Dolphins hadn't won it. This time they did win it, and he didn't remember having done it? So do you remember the celebration? Do you remember, I mean, the fact you guys I, won the Super Bowl? The next thing I remember was waking up the next morning. So you you know, you know, told the, the great emotional story about sitting on that bumper and crying your eyes out, and for 365 days all you wanted was to get back and, and win a Super Bowl. You did it, and you're telling me you don't really even remember doing it. Nope. Well, glad he's got a sense of humor about it now. Gary Premian tried to keep his sense of humor after the game. He said this is the first time the GOAT of the game is in the winner's locker room. And that championship ring, he said, will hang heavy on my hand. Basically, he knew he had messed up. And his teammates were not going to be that easy to forgive him. Here's the long snapper Howard Kendig. Uh, Earl was holding, and uh, it come back perfect. And anyway, during the offseason, Gerald was telling people, well, the staff wasn't that good. And I didn't say anything about it. And I, and I finally called Coach Shields. I don't work, you know. That staff was perfect. So, anyway, <laughs> I got Gerald. I said, Gerald, what are you telling everybody? That? Hell, that staff was perfect, man. He said, man, let's just let a sleeping dog lie. <laughs> Easy for him to say. Well, the good news is the defense bailed out Upremian there at the end. The defense making stops. The run game controlling the clock. That was big. Here's Larry Zonka. Well... <laughs> we were playing very cautiously and very conservatively, and it uh, we had the lead and we were going to maintain the lead. Um, but you know where it should have been, uh, well, where we should have scored, we didn't, and we ended up trying the field goal and it ended up 14-7 game, and then all the so-called shit hit the fan. And uh, I'll tell you that was a um, that was a harrowing closing moments. Uh, Jake Scott, I'll never, that's burned in my, indelibly into my subconscious, the picture of him catching that ball that he went way out of formation to intercept with his fingertips as he was going down and pulling it in, much like Tyree later in years. You know, the Giants uh, defeated the Patriots, I believe. The same thing, the exact same thing, that just a total 150% effort to, 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 uh, take it over offensively greasy finished the game having completed eight of 11 passes for 88 yards that's it zonka was the game's leading rusher he could have been mvp 15 carries for 112 kick had 38 rushing yards couple receptions and a touchdown morris had 34 rushing yards but someone from that defense it seemed would have to be named mvp the redskins offense had the ball more than 30 minutes never did score a touchdown or even kick a field goal jake scott would get named MVP. And sure enough, he had the two interceptions, but he also had the bad fumble on a punt return. The thinking man's fan was saying, hey, what about Manny Fernandez, the defender who dominated the game? Well, the MVP in those days was chosen by a single journalist. It was a rotating basis, and this time the NFL had chosen Dick Schapp of Sport Magazine, who later admitted he was nursing a massive hangover, said I really hadn't been paying full attention to the game. He did remember Scott's two interceptions, and decided Scott would be the man. Manny Fernandez, this tremendous player who was a Dolphin for seven years, always overlooked. At least his teammates knew he should have been Super Bowl Seven MVP. And Jake Scott knew the landscape. He couldn't turn down the award, but what did he do? Uh, he gave Fernandez a set of keys to the pickup truck that he'd won for being named MVP. Dick Anderson had played a great game as well, and he knew heading in, it was going to be a really tough, really good ball game with George Allen as their coach and Billy Kilmer as their quarterback. Well, I mean, um, we th- they were a, they were a team that played as a team as well, and so uh, you know you wanted to f- try to find the weakness that that occurred, and you know um, he was a, the smartest quarterback probably that we played, but he he didn't throw the ball as hard as other people, and so you know you you have to adapt 
what your defenses are against what they can do, and particularly on passing situations. And you know the ability um, on passing situations on in in those days we could hit a receiver in the field any time the ball wasn't in the air as long as he was between the quarterback and 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 us. And so we did a pretty good job in knocking down receivers or you know hitting them first and then running with them, um, which changed what the quarterback did. And then it gave our defensive line an opportunity to get to the quarterback so the, the eventually they changed that rule and you know now players have to run with them and they can't you know bang them like we could so you know if a player came came off the line and and I was going to send the cornerback back you know and I, and I went up and hit him and I'm just going to knock him down and if he's on his you know if you knock him down or knock him off or knock him out of bounds um, you know that eliminates somebody that they can throw to And try as they did, the Redskins never did find many open men. No points at all from that Washington offense. And as for Miami's guys on offense, uh, Mercury Morris, breakthrough star, that Dolphins offense all year. Let's turn to you. You've just won a Super Bowl. What's the feeling inside that great big heart of yours? We had come come there to do just that. So... When I remember the press asked Zonka, hey, how does it feel that you guys, you won every game, you guys went undefeated? And Zonka said, hey, I'm just happy to get the old man off our back. <laughs> and that's exactly the sentiment that I had too. Forget about going undefeated. We got Shula off our ass because the year started with us in the meeting where he brings us in and he's starting to talk like he's glad to see us back. In seven, after we got our ass kicked by the Cowboys, and when we get back on the first day, we got to watch that film. So he starts critiquing the film as if it happened the day wow. before. And he's barking out these things where people, he'd been waiting for months to put this on in front of us to make us feel the same way he was feeling about it. See how sick you feel? Well, see. See how sick and sorry you feel? Well, those are all his. You know, just think how sick and sorry you're going to be if you don't go back and redeem yourselves. But I forgot to tell you, it's just as much my fault as it is yours because you can't be world champions unless you win all three seasons. The regular season, the playoff season, and if you're good enough, your season boils down to one game, and that's the game you got to win. Bingo. <laughs> that nullifies everybody else because they think they think because they're on the trail, that that's the end of the road. No, the end of the road is when you run out of lampposts, all right, and you're, you're done. And, and we ran out of lampposts in 17-0. And the Patriots thought that 18-0 was sufficient enough to just waltz in and be ceremoniously be 19-0. No. I, I, I told them the odds in, the, in them winning um, are... The, the odds of the Giants winning are 40 or 50 to 1. So, but the chance of them winning is 50-50. No different than the, toy, than the coin toss. And in 1973, we won the coin toss 16 out of 17 times. And the only time we didn't lose the coin toss, I mean, we lost the coin toss, was when Larry Little wanted to call it. Hey, I want to call it this time. So we've been calling, Nick and Bob call heads the whole time. Never tails. He calls tails. It's heads. <laughs> now, that pissed me off more than that season. <laughs> All right, Merck, there's a 1973 podcast coming some other time. We'll get to that, I promise. But to finish off 72, back we go to the man who I think defined the toughness of the team, Mercury's backfield mate, Larry Zonka. He points out that in this final game, it was Gary Yepremian's little hands overtaken by Jake Scott's massive hands, and the right things happened once the final gun had sounded. Well, I think the fact that it's based on teamwork, it is the epitome of the absolute top of the mountain for every player being as important to the team effort as every other player. Certainly, you have stars. You have a Bob Greasy. You, you have a Nick Bonacani, a Doug Swift, whatever, whichever player you want to pull out. And they outstand because they play most of the time. 
but the special teams players. Charlie Babb that I alluded to earlier is a guy that made the difference in the Cleveland game. One play makes the difference on being on top of the mountain or almost on the mountain. And almost on the mountain is an eternity of distance from being on top of the mountain. So that's the, that's the difference. That's the tiny bit of difference. So every man, no matter whether he was a starter or a star or whether he was a guy that played on the second or third team back and only got on the field one play a game or one or two plays every couple games, he could be the guy that made the difference. And on different occasions, it was that guy. So it's the complete completeness of it. Every man that wears that ring knows that he was just as important as every other man. Maybe one played more and made more of a difference, maybe, but they still all made the difference in perfection. And that is the real story of the 1972 Dolphins. Undefeated Miami finding different heroes every game and sometimes every drive. They found the will to overcome every obstacle scattered randomly in front of them. And what they ultimately found was the undying affection of Dolphins fans even now, some 50 years after the fact. This is Josh Lewin. Thank you so much for tuning in all season long. Thanks to Scott Stone, the late Jason Jenkins, the Dolphins social media team, and everyone with the Dolphins organization. Thanks, of course, to the players and some others who were there 50 years ago who shared their memories out loud. Thanks to NFL Films and especially to the great Marshall John Fisher, who you heard earlier. His is a definitive work on this subject with his book, 17 and O. That's O, spelled O-H. And that's an H that could stand for half a century, I suppose. It has now been precisely that long. Fifty years have passed, and the waves have yet to wash away what those guys so carefully and beautifully drew in the Miami sand. Your final score in Super Bowl VII. The first ever Super Bowl for Miami. The Dolphins, 14. Washington, 7. Win number 17 against not a single loss at all. The very definition of perfection. <laughs>